Heavenly Father, we come to you this night and we ask that by your Spirit you would open your word to us so that we'd be transformed by you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It is a, um, it is a joy um, to be here. My wife, Sally, who could not travel uh, with me at this time, she sends her love. She was sorry to uh, miss spending time, especially with um, Steve and, and Lindsay. Stephen and Lindsay are, um, you guys have an amazing pastor and his wife. And um, it is an honor for me to be here, and it's a joy. Um, thank you, Stephen, for sharing the pulpit with me. We are um, going to be looking at Psalm 51. When Stephen sent me the lectionary, um, there are all these great scriptures, but, but being Lent, it seemed that Psalm 51 would be the appropriate place to be. We, we start, actually, Ash Wednesday with Psalm 51, and, and since Lent is a time of penitence, um, there are things that this psalm helps us get right, uh, to orient us correctly so that we enter into what it is to be repentant in a right way. And, and the reason it's necessary is um, when we deal with our own sin, when we become aware of our sin, um, in our flesh, we, we tend to have one of two responses. And, and one response is, is to go into self-loathing and, um, and think, you know what, I am a failure, this, I'm just a sham, I, I'm no good. And, and sometimes we even think that, that self-loathing is, is a form of holiness and, and actually is repentance. But, but self-loathing is not repentance. In fact, it gets in the way of true repentance because when we are stuck in self-loathing, where is our focus? Me. Instead of being focused on the Lord and His goodness and His grace. So either we go into self-loathing, we go into those places of I'm just a sham, I'm a failure, or the other thing that we do is we minimize our sins. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? We, we, we just don't... I'm a pretty good person living a pretty good life, and, and the way that we tend to do this is we have two categories of sins, right? They're, they're the bad sins that bad people do, and then, so there's a, those are unacceptable, and, and then there's sort of the acceptable sins. Like, you know, I might have bent the truth a little, I might have gossiped a little, but I didn't murder anybody, I didn't steal, so my sins are acceptable sins. We, we will either go to minimize our sins or we'll get stuck in, in a place of, of self-loathing. And so this psalm actually orients us that we can enter into repentance in a way that, that is a godly way. Now, the, the context for this is, um, this is when the prophet Nathan um, rebukes David over the whole Bathsheba Gate um, event and, and comes and, and brings a word to him. And this is then the psalm that is, that is showing David's response to that. Now, this is not exactly what he said when, when Nathan confronted him, but this is his reflection on, on that moment. Um, King David basically violated most of the second half of the Ten Commandments. And, and so when he is confronted with this, there is a, a sense of the weight of his sin that, that overtakes him. Um, because the, the law was clear. For his sins, for the things that he committed, the death penalty is actually what should come. Uh, so because of his sins, what he deserves is to die. It is not that, that David could say, you know what, yeah, thank you, I'm sorry, I'm going to go to the temple and do a sin offering and, and God and I are good. Because Leviticus 4 is really clear that the sin offering does not cover these kinds of serious and premeditated sins. 
So David is in a place where there is a desperation, and so this, this penitential song arises, but, but there actually is more of hope that is woven through this penitential psalm. And, and a realistic hope, not a fantasy hope, but a realistic hope because it is looking fully into the truth. So in the first few verses of Psalm 51, you have three different words that describe sin. Uh, you have transgressions, you have iniquity, and you have sin, and they all carry a little bit of a different nuance. So um, transgressions is the place of willful rebellion. So it's, you know something's wrong, and yet you still go ahead and do it. But it's actually a little bit more than just knowing something's wrong and going ahead and doing it. It is, um, it is shaking your fist at God. It is an act of defiance. Um, parents, you know this, right? You, you've seen this in your kids. You, you know what that, that place of that shaking their fist, that place of defiance, there is this place of, of a willful rebellion that he's speaking about. Iniquities uh, carries with it a sense of, of going astray. It's more the picture of something that is straight, being twisted and bent out of shape, being made crooked. It carries with it the sense of, of there is um, goodness and life and beauty that becomes corrupted, that becomes twisted away from the goodness and life and beauty that it was intended to be. It's, it's something being bent out of shape. And then the word sin is a, um, is a, a largest category. And this is anything that falls short of the standard of perfection that God has decreed. And so um, it's not just the, the moral failings that we have. Um, it is that, but it also covers anything that falls short of the perfection that God intended in the beginning. So um, there was in the beginning a moral perfection. So anything that breaks that moral perfection falls into this falling short, this, this category of sin. But there was also a physical perfection in the beginning. So anything that falls short of even that physical perfection, even if it's not morally wrong, uh, falls into that category of sin. And so David is, is covering all the bases. He recognizes his actions encompass all of these. And in that, then, there's this urgent cry for mercy, which is really David saying that the only basis I have to ask for forgiveness is actually, Lord, your grace. I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't deserve anything. Actually, what I deserve is to die. There, there, is, there is a place of understanding that the only way that I could approach you is by your grace, because what I deserve actually is death and, and condemnation. And then he, he says, blot out my sins. And, and um, we think of blotting something out like you know, somebody spills milk and you take a napkin and you blot it up or ink, and, and that's not quite the right picture. It's more of, of remove or scrape off. He's like saying, give me a clean slate. Just, just wipe it clean. And so he asked, for, uh, he asked for God's mercy. He asked for God to uh, blot away his transgressions. He asks him to wash away all my iniquity. That's, that's a very simple picture of, of some dirty clothes that are washed and all the dirt is removed. And then he also says, and cleanse me from my sin. And, and cleanse is different than wash because the word cleanse actually relates to worship. 
in the Old Testament, everything was divided into two categories. You had the things that were holy, they were set apart for God, and you had the things that were common. Uh, they were just for common usage in life. Of the common things, that was further divided into two categories, things that are clean and things that are unclean. You could not go into the temple if you were unclean. So it doesn't have to be a moral failure. Clean, uh, unclean is broken into sort of a sinful, rebellious unclean and, and an unclean that is not sinful or rebellious. For example, if you came into contact with a dead body, uh, which might be the thing you need to do, it's not sinful to do that, but you are now contaminated by death and death has no place in God's presence. You had to be cleansed before you could go into God's presence again. So he's saying, cleanse me. He's saying that, there, that I am unclean. And all transgressions, all iniquity, all sin is, is unclean. So he's saying, Lord, and he's saying, cleanse me. He is asking to be able to go back into God's presence in worship. He is looking for a deeper restoration. Now, all of these appeals that David is making, they're based on the character of God. So he asks for mercy according to your unfailing love. This is God's loyal covenant love. This is the love that he has for his people, his faithfulness, uh, for those who belong to him, his love that never fails. In one sense, David is saying, Lord, have mercy on me because, because I belong to you. I mean, for good or bad, I'm yours. And so he's, he's appealing to God's character in his unfailing love, his faithful love. But, but even beyond that, he is making that appeal based on his relationship with the Lord. That the Lord is the one who has rescued him, has made him his own. And, and the other thing that comes in that is that if he's appealing to God's unfailing love, he's also standing in his identity as one who is loved. In the midst of that sin, he still knows that he is one who is loved. Why? Because God's love is unfailing. It's not based on my performance. So that's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 38 and 39, this is the shortened version obviously, but, but nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So David is He's trusting in the God of love, his faithful love, his covenant love, and he is also standing in who he is as one who is loved. And there is a, there's a strength that he has in doing that. It's a place of, of recognizing that, um, that it's not about my performance and I'm loved because I do things well, and therefore I, I just messed up and now I'm not loved. He is trusting God's character as the God of unfailing love, which means that he always remains the beloved. And then he says, according to your great compassion. Some of the older translations, I think the King James had the, the used, instead of great compassion, the tender mercies. Lord, because of your tender mercies. Um, this carries a sense of, of nurture and care of protection and nurture and care for, for one that is helpless, 
That's what that conveys. So David is coming and he's saying, Lord, I am trusting in your tender mercies. I know that I am completely and totally helpless. I am dependent on you. I can't make this right. But you are the God of, of tender mercy. You, you actually nurture and care for and protect your own. So repentance is not something that we engage in to appease a fickle God. Repentance is not something we do to get from God's bad side to God's good side. Yes, God is a God of judgment and His wrath is real. I'm not saying that that's not true. But if you are in Christ, then you know that God's full wrath against all of your sin has already fallen on Jesus. There is no new wrath that gets stirred up. All of God's wrath against our sins has already fallen on Jesus. And this is why Paul can give us those words of assurance in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we think of repentance having to do with, with this place of, of condemnation and, and self-loathing, we are, we are missing the heart of what repentance is. If you look in the parables in Luke chapter 15, you have the parable of, of the lost coin, you have the parable of the lost sheep, you have the parable of the prodigal son. And, and what we find in those parables is that repentance is not something that we do to bring the Father to us. He is the one who pursues. He is actually the one who finds us. Repentance is not what we do to get, get, get right with God. It is not something that we do to try to then draw Him near to us. Repentance is always our response to being found by Him. It is always our response to His love. Now, there can be great sorrow, there can be great tears as we are convicted of our sins, but, but condemnation is not to mark repentance for those who have been rescued by Jesus. So what you find here is that David is saying, I know my sin. I know the depth of my sin. I know how great my sin is. And I know that your love and your compassion and your grace is greater than my sin. That is how David is approaching God. In this first verse, this, this mercy and your unfailing love and, and your great compassion, your tender mercies, this is the essence of what Psalm 51 is then walking through. We have to understand that as we begin to look through the rest. Now, I want to be clear that, that David is not coming with presumption. Um, there is a difference between coming with assurance and coming with presumption, and, and even the language here shows that. If you are reading in your Bible and you see the word LORD all capitalized, that is saying that this was, this was the way that they are showing this was the, the name Yahweh, sort of God's covenant name, His, his first name. David is not coming to the Lord in a first-name basis. He says, God. It's part of showing that he's not coming with any presumption. He's not coming with anything that senses that, you know what, God's going to forgive me because that's his job. Presumption is the place where we either think that somehow we deserve it God owes us this. God owes me forgiveness because I put in the coins of repentance, pull the lever, and he has to forgive me. 
Um, so there's some sense of somehow we obligate God to this, that somehow he owes us. And presumption means that, that maybe we don't even ask, right? He's not coming with presumption. He is coming with a confidence in who God is and in God's character and his standing with his Father. We have in our communion prayers the, the prayer of humble access that we do before we come to the table. And, and I love the version that is in the, the Kenyan Book of Common Prayer because it begins this way. Father, we come to your table as your children, not presuming, but assured. Not trusting in ourselves or our own righteousness, but in your abundant grace. That is capturing what David is praying in Psalm 51. Now in verse 5, David makes a distinction. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He understands that it's not that he sinned and therefore he becomes a sinner. He's saying, actually, I was born with the principle of sin in me. Because I am born a sinner, that is why I am sinning. Uh, that this is, this is not that I do something wrong, therefore I become a sinner. Now, I want to be clear that this is not saying that when you, when you see a, a, a newborn infant, you say, oh, that wicked little creature. That's, that's not the point. It's saying that we are all born with a fallen nature. We are all born twisted out of shape. So in the beginning, if you look in the first couple chapters of Genesis, we were made in the image of God. And we were made as his image. In other words, we were meant to be his glory and his presence in creation. That spoke to our identity, to who we were in his image and as his image, as his glory and his presence in creation. And in Genesis chapter 3, when we rebel against God, what happens is the image of God that we are created in becomes tainted by sin. Genesis chapter 5 actually picks this up. It states again that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. But when they had their son, Seth, he was born in the image of Adam. Uh, Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 5. And, and the image of Adam being in, in Adam is the image of God that has been distorted by sin. It's the image of God that, that has been tainted by sin. So it's not that the image of God is gone, but it's a clouded image which I guess in Portland makes sense, right? You know the sun's out there, but you don't actually see it in its full glory. There's sort of a clouded glory that you see. It's not that the image of God is gone. I would say that there's actually just enough to haunt us. That somehow we know that we were meant for something more, that we were meant to be something more. And so we struggle between shame for what is not and a longing for what we think somehow should be. So it's not that the image of God is gone. It's just that it has been, it has been tainted, it has been corrupted by our sin. Now that does not mean that we are therefore completely evil. So you have verse 6. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David here is saying, you know what? I am actually capable of better things than what I did. That God desires these better things from me. And of course, it, it makes sense. When we, when we ate the fruit, it was the fruit of the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
which means that we still have some capacity for good. We have a capacity to do things that, that promote life and create beauty. And we have a capacity for evil, for things that destroy life and things that corrupt beauty. So it's not that we therefore are now completely evil, it's just that sin affects every area of our life. So even the good things that we do are still tainted by sin. They still are, are clouded by our sin, just like the image of God is clouded by our sin. So it's not saying that, that we can do good things that earn us or merit us God's love or God's favor, but we can actually do things that promote life and beauty. And in verse 7, David is basically saying, Lord, would you unsin me? You and you alone can unsin me. You are the only one who can make me pure. And I need it because I am being crushed by the, the guilt and the shame and the weight of my sins. And, and what you find in this next section, he's saying, and I know that when I am forgiven, there's going to be this joy because the, the burden now has been lifted. It's that sense of, I will no longer be crushed because, as it says in Isaiah 53, you were crushed for me. And so there's this sense of, of knowing that when you forgive, Lord, when you restore me, I will be able to enter into worship again with a sense of joy and, and freedom and release. Now, obviously, Technically, David could have gone into worship and probably did at any point uh, between his sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband and the time that, that the prophet uh, confronted him. It's not that he was somehow barred from being in worship, but that he could not know and experience the joy and the life that that worship was meant to be. And so David, he wants more than just being forgiven of our sins. He's saying, I need my nature to be changed. So you have in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That creative and redemptive work of God. Uh, this is speaking to the Lord who alone can do this creative and this redemptive work. And we find that in the New Testament as well, uh, that it says that if anyone's in Christ, he is therefore a new creation. And so it, it, it's not just that I need to be forgiven, but I need my very nature to be changed. And so we move from being enemies of God to being children of God. And the place of a steadfast spirit, renew a steadfast spirit in me, he is basically saying, Lord, give me the ability to live into what you have done. You find in the New Testament as well. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And yet Paul also says in Ephesians 4, we therefore need to put off the old and put on the new. So it has been done. In the Lord, we have been changed. Our nature, our identity has changed. And yet, we still need to put off and put on. There is the, the process of by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, being shaped by the Word of God, being encouraged by the people of God. We live into what God has done. And that's really what David is praying for here. Lord, give me the ability to live into what you have done. You know, verse 16, I just need to... Uh, speak on briefly. It says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. This is not David saying, you know what? 
Moses got it all wrong and that whole sacrificial system you really are tired of and you're done with it. Now this is actually what God instituted. So he's not, he's not saying that this sacrificial system that was instituted is wrong. What he is saying is God doesn't want empty worship. He doesn't want me to come and just go through the motions. He doesn't want hypocritical worship. Maybe another way to say it is, God, I know what you want is me. You, you want me. And that is actually the essence of true worship. True worship happens when we bring all of who we are into his presence. That is what worship is meant to be, where we bring the fullness of who we are into his presence, and then he lifts and he, he sanctifies. And, and it's not... Um, I'm just going to say, um, not necessarily this is my experience, but actually it is. I don't know if you've ever had that time where you're, you're driving to church with your spouse and something happens and, and you start arguing. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? And you get to church and, and like you, you slam the car doors and you walk into church and then the smile comes on. Hello, praise Jesus. Isn't it wonderful? Yes, things are good. And you worship and you walk out and you get in the car. And you start again. Has anybody else ever done that? See, we have this sense that I need to get things right, leave all my junk out there so I can come in and worship. Which means we are not bringing ourselves into his presence in worship for him to deal with those things, to sanctify and to, to set things right. What David is saying is that I know actually you're not wanting me to go through the motions. What you want is me. And so if I come and I'm feeling the weight of my sin, I come and need to bring that. If I come and I'm feeling the weight of, of sorrows, it's fine to come and cry. Or if I'm coming and I'm feeling joyful, but it's Lent and I can't be joyful because it's Lent and there's something wrong about that. No, that's a wrong understanding. That, that what God is looking for, what true worship is, is actually when we bring ourselves fully into his presence. When it says that you will not despise, that is, that is a figure of speech, it's a way of speaking that, that actually says, Lord, you joyfully delight in accepting this offering. Again, God's love for us is not based on our performance. He delights in using the real us. And that's where transformation happens. Uh, that's where we actually give God space and invite him in to be a part of that transformation because we're not coming with him with the idea of who we're pretending to be and, and the image we want everybody else to see. We're coming fully as who we are. And that gives him the space to actually come and begin that work of transformation. So I'd say Lent is a necessary season. We need the Holy Spirit to move us from sort of having a hypothetical understanding of our sin. Most Christians would say, yes, I know that I sin and I fall short of the glory of God. But there is a difference between hypothetically knowing that we sin and actually coming face to face with our actual sins. When we are afraid of self-loathing or when we're trying to minimize our sins, we can't come face to face with our sins because it doesn't feel safe. And so what is safe is to say hypothetically, yes, I know that I'm a sinner. But hypothetical sins means we have a hypothetical savior should we hypothetically need one. It is actually our actual sins as we bring them into his presence that we know that, that actually there is a, a broad space that we have to stand on. 
that there is no condemnation as we come. That, that he does not come to shame us. That, that is, it is not that, that repentance is about self-loathing or shaming. It is that he has come to set us free. And because I know of his grace, because I know of his unfailing love, because I know of his tender mercies, I actually have the space to face my sins and confess them. Because my sins don't change my standing with my Father, whose love is unfailing. When we don't understand that truth, then actually we find ways to not engage in true repentance. It's a place where we can say, yes, I understand, Lord. What I deserve is nothing more than judgment and condemnation, but you took that judgment, you took that condemnation so that I might be made new that gives me the foundation to repent and face into my sins. It's understanding that that repentance is not God commanding us to do things right. Repentance is an invitation into the kingdom of God. That that God is, is not concerned that we get every step right. He's concerned that we're heading the right direction that we are stepping more fully, walking more fully in his kingdom and what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. This understanding of repentance, of, of penitence that we find in Psalm 51, what it does is it protects us from those places of, of feeling like, okay, I know I'm forgiven, but I really know God is still disappointed in me. He just tolerates me. I am a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Those places where we just feel like, I am just a failure and, and, and my life is a sham. See, repentance is not about beating ourselves up. It's about recognizing and being honest with how far we have wandered and knowing that his grace and his love and his tender mercies are greater than our wandering. Repentance is a response to being pursued by his love. And this is what keeps us from shame and self-loathing, and it also keeps us from the places of minimizing our sins and not actually dealing with them. That's why this psalm has been instrumental in the church. Uh, It has shaped our understanding of, of repentance for centuries. And it is a vital piece for us to understand as we are walking in this season of Lent that that the call to repentance is actually the call that God is giving for us to stand more fully into who he has made us to be, to stand as his children, to stand as those who have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. And yes, we will still sin, but that sin no longer owns me or defines me. Jesus does. It's a call into freedom. It is a call into life. Let us pray. Father, I come before you confessing that there are times where I just minimize my sin and I don't don't want to face it. And there are times where I might feel like um, the holy thing to do is to go into self-loathing. Father, would you, by your spirit and your word, work in us the truth of what repentance is. 
that we know that we come and we stand in your presence. As I said in Hebrews, we boldly enter in because of your unfailing love, which means that we know who we are as those who are loved by you because of your grace, because of your tender mercy and your care for us. Oh, that we would be bold to repent, so that we'd be bold in stepping into who you have called and made us to be as your kingdom, as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.